I'm a really unlikely person to be doing yoga. I was brought up in a, a fairly blue-collar environment. I'm not an educated woman, um, very independent, and buying into all the spiritual fluffiness has never, ever been anything that I would have predicted would have happened to my life. Why I'm so attracted to it is because it's anything but fluffy. Yoga has infiltrated law schools and strip malls, churches and hospitals. This 5,000-year-old spiritual technology is converging with 21st century medical science and with many religious and philosophical perspectives. Sean Korn takes us inside the practicalities and power of yoga. She describes how it helps her face the darkness in herself and the world and how she's come to see yoga as a form of body prayer. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Though yoga is thought of in the West as primarily about physical postures, it originated in northern India as a practice for spiritual and ethical balance. Gandhi's nonviolence was an expression of his understanding of yoga. The American Yoga Association calls yoga a science of life, aiming to bring balance between the physical body, the mind, and the spirit, between action, intelligence, and the higher self. Over 20 million people currently practice yoga in the United States alone, and I'm one of them. I spoke with Sean Korn in 2008. She is a star in serious yoga circles, one of the most revered contemporary teachers and trainers. Yoga has also drawn Sean Korn off the mat to help child prostitutes off the streets from Los Angeles to Cambodia. And she's just released her first DVD, Body, Mind, Flow. So let's just start. And one question that I always ask, um, or just, you know, want to talk about at the beginning is, I mean, I've, I have been reading other interviews you've given, and it, it sounds like in terms of your upbringing, in terms of religion, you had a situation that's pretty common these days, more common than a few generations ago. Um, was it one of your parents Jewish and one Catholic? And yeah. kind of what they weren't observant of anything. Um, no, no. My parents were. My mom was a teenager when she had us, and my mom was raised in a really strict Jewish household. Mm-hmm. And my dad was raised uh, a Christian, a Catholic actually, but his father was Jewish. Oh. So his background was a little bit more open-minded, but my mother's was not. And when my mom got pregnant, her parents were furious <laughs> because my father wasn't Jewish, and. My mother, as a result, decided to rebel and made a decision to raise us with no religion uh, because her upbringing was so strict. So we celebrated every single holiday that provided a gift. (laughs) And um, there was an enormous amount of love, but we had like a Jewish star on top of the Christmas tree. Right. And um, I don't think I'd ever been to church or to a temple. None of that was really brought into the way that we were brought up. So it it was interesting. It was good. And I recognize some of the negatives now that I'm a little bit older. The good part of it was my parents allowed us to make our own decisions around religion and spirituality. And there was no dogma um, attached. So my brothers and I are all very, very open minded Mm -hmm. to um, to spirit uh, and in each of our own ways. I would say the negative thing, and I've talked about this with my parents, is Although they did not raise us to believe in a patriarchal God, the school that I was involved in, the culture that I was raised in, which was pretty blue collar, it was just all over the place that 
God was an energy that showed up more or less when I did something bad. Right. I think that's really interesting. I saw you made that point in another conversation that although you, in the absence of any kind of positive teaching or Mm -hmm. observance, you kind of absorbed cultural dogma about what religion is and who God is. Completely. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And there was nothing to contradict that. Mm Mm-hmm. And you also, from a pretty early age, um, suffered from an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Right, from when I was around 11. Mm-hmm. Did you know well, that that's what was, it was when you were 11? No, no. The obsessive-compulsive disorder, it didn't get, get really acknowledged. Mm-hmm. When I was around 19 is the first time that a doctor had explained to me what it is that I had. Before then, I thought it was an interesting quirk. Um, so did my family. I was obsessed with even numbers, four and eight, and I'd have to um, touch things in certain numbers, blink, swallow. If I walked into a wall, I'd have to walk in on the other side. And depending on my anxiety level, my obsession for balance became greater or less than. And it was also very much associated with death. I always felt that if I, if I did things in certain numbers, I can prevent the death or dying of somebody around me that I loved. Is that this common, back, an obsessive-compulsive disorder, now, now that you know more about it? That people well, have that I kind work of with, fear of death or consequences? I would have to say that OCD is much more common. I, I can spot it a, a mile away. I can watch it in people's body language. Um, it has a lot to do with control, and uh, it's a survival skill of dealing with stress. Hmm. Whether or not it's associated with a superstition um, or with a fear like death is really, I think, dependent upon the individual. But more often than not, people will say that to me, that they feel that they can prevent bad things from happening right. if they do their things in certain patterns or whatever each person's individual um, uh, uh, compulsion is. But for me... It was definitely related to spirit because I wasn't raised with God and because God only showed up in my mind uh, when bad things happened by putting things in order and creating a certain amount of control to a world that I thought was chaotic. Um, I was a very intuitive kid. I was aware that there was a lot of chaos in my family, which there would be when your parents are essentially teenagers. And because there was no structure or this sense of spirit or God— I decided to play God. So by keeping my world in order, I can control bad things from happening. Huh. This wasn't conscious. I, I figured no. this out way later. It was just an interesting little survival skill that a, a kid out of balance created. Um, I'm grateful that I had something and didn't have to necessarily turn to drugs and alcohol to stave off the anxiety. I found something else that did the trick. Yeah, it, I mean, but, it's, it's kind of interesting, interesting only because you found such healing that yoga is, I mean, one element of yoga is about balance. And in fact, you mm-hmm. had this disordered relationship, this very compulsive, anxious pursuit of balance mm-hmm. in that disease. Yeah, well, I didn't know how bad my OCD was until my first yoga class. Really? Because I remember being in my one of my first downward dogs, and I looked at my hands, and I noticed that one hand was a fraction of an inch further forward than the other, yet my shoulders were balanced. And I didn't understand, how do I get my hands to match, but then my shoulders would be out of balance. And my heart started to race. Hmm. And... I was, for the first time, really critically aware that both sides of the body aren't exactly the same. And the teacher said something in that class that was really life-changing for me. He said, breathe and everything changes. And 
what that meant for me was that as the anxiety came up, which it was because I couldn't get my body in the right alignment, Mm -hmm. I just kept breathing deeply. And it was a sensation. Anxiety is a feeling. It's a sensation within the body. The deeper I breathed, the more that started to pass. And it just became something else. And I thought, wow, I wonder if when anxiety shows up in my life, if I can actually do the same thing, if I can just stay present and breathe and trust that it will change. Hmm. Okay, so tell me, I mean, had you gotten any kind of treatment for for the OCD or was this also the beginning of of you really taking that seriously as a problem, even as a medical problem? Yeah, it all happened at 19. Uh-huh. I got into yoga at 19. I got into therapy at 19. And I understood uh, OCD at that same age. Um, you know, I, was, I lived in New York City, so I was on a, I lived on a walk-up. Yeah, and you left and home at a pretty early age, didn't you? You didn't go to college. 17. And, yeah. Yeah, 17. And uh, I would be sure I locked that door, but I would have to go up the stairs again and again and again and check the door. And even though I knew the door was locked, I couldn't not keep, I'd come down, go back up again. I think I lived on the fifth floor. Hmm. And I knew then it was getting in the way of my life. All right. I mean, it sounds like you actually had really a pretty immediate breakthrough in the first class. I was going to ask you about the first class and also about the class where you where you understood that this could be transformative. Uh, yeah, that didn't happen for years later. Well, tell me about that. I mean, tell me about well, that progression. I'd have to say that my first yoga classes, I, I liked them. Um, I felt great in my body. I was doing a lot of drugs at that time, and um, I, I liked drugs a lot. I adapted to it well, mm-hmm. um, especially hallucinogens and things like that. You know, I enjoyed getting high, and I'm very grateful that yoga came into my life because it offered me an alternative way to raise my consciousness hmm. um, that wasn't introducing drugs into my system. I got off of drugs at that period and stopped smoking cigarettes and just became more health conscious in general. And is this when you were working at the Life Cafe in New York? Yeah, yeah. Life Cafe was instrumental because um, the owners of Life ended up opening the Jiva Mukti Yoga Schools, which which some of the... Yeah, really one of the formative uh, leading yoga schools Mm -hmm. in the country, I think, where a lot of people train. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. I was a waitress there. And uh, I was really, really blessed because... They went off to India, the owners, and came back. And I I really saw a difference in them. They weren't lecturing or preaching or telling us how to live our lives. But I saw a sense of of ease that I hadn't noticed before and thought, like, wow, I could use a little of that. Hmm. And so I decided just to check it out. And I got into the body part of it, not the mind-body. That didn't come until later. And I also saw that it helped create a sense of ease ease in my nature when I would leave the class. I just felt better. The first time that yoga had a real impact on me was I was still living in New York. It was, I remember the day it was snowing. I was, uh, I just finished a yoga class and I was walking back to my apartment and I had this really weird feeling in my heart, in my body and everything. And I I stopped because I was trying to identify like what it was that I was feeling. And I realized that I was happy and (laughs) it was I mean it sounds it's it was such an odd moment because I was young prior to that class I was confused I didn't know if I should I I was with a guy at the time I didn't know if I should stay with him if I should move to LA you know as any Mm -hmm, young person mm -hmm. I was just in the middle of um, my own little personal drama 
and basically lived each day thriving on that drama and was pretty miserable. Um, <laughs> and I just had this sense that everything was unfolding, that, that I was in something that was bigger than I could possibly define. And it was just such an odd little moment. And I thought to myself, what was different? What changed? And the only thing that was different was the fact that I took this yoga class. The seeds had been planted. It just hadn't awoken. And for whatever reason, that, that day, I was ready to receive it. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with yoga teacher and social activist Sean Korn. Here she is teaching a class at the Yoga Journal San Francisco Conference in 2007. So from here, we'll continue the ritual, but I'm going to give you a standing sequence. And just to move the energy through the whole of the body, I'm going to give you a sequence from the shoulders all the way down through the hamstrings so that the entire body becomes oxygenated, the blood flowing. So go ahead and step your right foot forward, turn your back foot flat. And on the inhale, come up into Virabhadrasana 1, arms up over your head. You're going to release the arms and interlace your fingers behind your back. Inhale, open the chest. And on the exhale, fold to the inside of your Let's talk right about what happens in yoga, whether it is relaxing or stimulating or, uh, you know, more of a physical experience or more of a mystical experience. When you first start taking yoga classes, I mean, again, depending on the kind of class you're taking and the kind of teachers mm-hmm. you have, you hear a lot about what's going on with your breath and your body, with your joints, with energy, with toxins. I mean, how do we, how do we know, what do we know about what, what yoga is doing, you know, really um, practically uh, on a practical that, level, is, sure. that is so unusual, that is unique and distinctive? Well, there's two, let's stay on the physical for a moment in that anytime you're moving, you're increasing the respiration and the circulation within your body. And that has an effect on your lymphatic system. The lympha moving through your body more systematically helps to draw toxins out. So, And do they measure that? Are there people who've measured this? I'm sure. I'm sure. And it's not just with yoga. It's with any form of physical activity. Um, So... Just on a physiological level, you detox your body, you increase your flexibility and mobility, you create more space in your, you know, in your muscles and your joints and your bones, and you feel better. And so what makes it unique, though, is by coupling it with deep and rhythmic breathing. It has an influence on the parasympathetic nervous system. It helps to align the mind and the body so that you stay calm and focused. So it's physically stimulating, but mentally grounding. So you walk out of a room feeling alive, but in your body and in your center, mm-hmm. not hyper, not depleted. So it becomes a meditation in action that has a very positive influence on your physical body. Again, depending on whether it's a physical practice or a restorative practice, right. both are different. Although it's kind of ironic because it doesn't make you less mentally present. Mm-hmm. It's just that your mind is settled mm-hmm. in your body. Right. Because that is the experience that one has when they are aligning the mind with the body. And that's really the next part of it, too, when you're talking about um, the, the benefits of this practice. It comes to this. In the practice of yoga, what we're taught is that there is no separation between the mind and the body. And everything that we're thinking or feeling or experiencing over the course of a lifetime or lifetimes 
has an effect on your cellular tissue. So your body remembers everything. And even though we have, as human beings, an incredibly and a, a gorgeous ability to reconcile or to reason, our bodies don't have that same ability to heal unless we're moving through experiences in our life in a spiritual way. So what I'm saying is if we're holding on to hate, blame, shame, anger, rage, sadness, or grief, something like that, those emotions can be as toxic on our physical body as a poor diet or as inertia, and they manifest as tension, stress, and anxiety. And so our physical body is actually masking the emotional resonance that mm-hmm. lies beneath holding, it. Holding it in somewhere and we're not aware mm-hmm. of it. We repress it. I know people who've had an experience of um, doing yoga for some time and having this experience that you describe of just feeling great, you know, feeling happy, feeling calm and alive, but then also going through a period of, of a real sadness that feels like it is emerging from within their bodies that they can't put words to, you know, yeah. they can't date it or give it a mm-hmm. story, uh, which is kind of um, frustrating in, in our culture. I mean, the way we live, which is that we should at least be able to talk about something in order to put it away. Is, is, that, uh, is that a manifestation of what you're talking about? Uh, it is. Um, I believe culturally we're addicted to our tension and we use it as a way to control our big feelings. So if I can put a block of energy around me, I don't have to deal with my rage or my fear. And with OCD, it's exactly what I was doing. I couldn't deal with the bigger feelings. My feelings were, um, because of the chaos in, in my world, I was scared, I was angry, I was fearful. And I had to create order and control in order to not deal with those bigger emotions. You, you did something, in fact, but mm-hmm. in fact, you weren't dealing with that. You weren't doing anything mm-hmm. with that. And so the, I could feel the anxiety arise. So I came up with interesting tools to deal with the anxiety. And this is what most people in our culture do. And then when it doesn't work, they use drugs, sex, alcohol, power, caffeine, food, anything to self-regulate or numb out. And in the practice of yoga, when you're releasing the tension organically through the practice of asana day in and day out, the emotions that are embedded in our cellular tissue begin to arise. And yoga is asking us to take the Band-Aid off the wound and be willing to heal it through a spiritual practice. So let's talk about some of the words that you use in the context of yoga that, in fact, are, are spiritual words like grace talk about the, invoking the energy of grace mm-hmm. in a yoga practice. Oh. What is? I don't think that would make sense to many people. Um, I think that there's a lot of ways. I think first I need to just define my relationship with God. Um, I talk about God all the time in class, and I'm pretty confident in my relationship with God, and therefore I'm comfortable using the word. But when I define spirit, it's that which, which exists within, that's of truth and love. And so that's when I refer to grace or to spirit or to God, I'm talking of truth and love. And so, I mean, again, when and this is a kind of the same theme. When you say that the heart of the practice of yoga is love, you know, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, how can <laughs> love be the heart of this practice of of a series of physical poses, breathing? It, it comes down to this for me. Um, you can't get to God through your head, at least in my experience. I'm, I might come back in 20 years and say, you know, remember that whatever thing I was saying at 41? <laughs> I was totally wrong. Um, but how I've experienced it 
is that you can't get to God through your head because you're, you're, um, it's determined by your five senses. So therefore, we're limited to what we know, what we see, what we've experienced here on earth. For me, I've only been able to get to God through my heart, not through what I know, but to what I feel, because feelings lead to surrender. And surrender allows you to, to step into that unknown state where there's a different level of acceptance to what is rather than what you're choosing it to be. So for me, you release the tension. It opens you up to feelings. Feelings connect you to surrender. And suddenly you're hearing with a new ear that moves beyond human interpretation but to spiritual perception, which is infinite and limitless. It's interesting, you know, um, somebody was quoted, this is an article in the New York Times that says, you just can't do all those prostrations without it doing something to you. And um, the, the truth is, I, as you're, you know, you're alluding to this without saying it directly, but I think, you know, Western religion, Western Christianity in particular, the kind of Protestant Christianity that has been so formative in American culture is very much a head trip. I mean, really got away from the involvement of the body. And it's not just yoga. I mean, I'm talking to people who are Pentecostal Christians and young conservative Jews uh, and Muslims who are integrating the body more and more into prayer and worship and experiencing that to be, you know, not just about worship, but to um, fulfill something that is absolutely basic and essential about being human. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's inevitable. It's beautiful to me. You know, what we're taught in yoga is there's no separation between the mind and the body and the spirit, that everything is interdependent upon the whole. And there's such, especially in our culture, there's so much uh, denial about our body because we often get so fixated on uh, the way that it looks. If we're not comfortable with the way that it looks, we deny it, shame it, or uh, we try to perfect it. Um, Yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah. Another aspect is actually using your body to pray. Well, talk to me about that body prayer or something you do. Yeah. Well, again, it's uh, it all connects ultimately back to service, uh, which is also you know kind of the evolution of the work that I've done. Mm-hmm. But um, using your pr- body to pray, I trust that if I do my yoga practice, I'm going to get stronger and more flexible. If I stay in alignment, if I don't push, if I don't force, then my body will organically open in time. Uh, I know that if I breathe deeply, I'll oxygenate my body. It has an influence on my nervous system. These things are fixed and I know to be true. But I also recognize that it's a mystical practice. And you can use your body as an expression of your devotion. So the way that you place your hands, the ways that you step a foot forward or back, everything is done with an off as an offering. I offer the movements to someone I love or to the healing of the planet. And so if I'm moving from a state of love and my heart is open to that connection between myself and another person or myself and the universe, it becomes an active form of prayer, of meditation, of grace. You know, I watched um, a video in which you demonstrated body prayer. I think it was at this great San Francisco yoga conference. Mm -hmm. And... um, you know, it was quite amazing to watch. You went through a sequence of poses, which are, which are in a, many practices of, of that kind of vinyasa flow yoga. But you did it at this prayerful pace. And there was, it was as though every breath and every movement was so incredibly full of intention. Mm-hmm. And... There was a grace to it that was kind of transcendent. Um, oh, thank you. 
Well, you don't have to be strong or flexible to be graceful. And when you're offering your practice as a gift, um, as I was in that particular, when you were watching that DVD, it was, as I do often, I was offering to my dad, who's, who's very ill. And so when I have an intention behind what I'm doing, then it becomes so fluid because if I fall out of a pose, I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to get disappointed or frustrated. I'm going to realize that this is my offering, and I don't want to offer that energy to my father. I only want to offer him my love. And so I let my body reflect that. And when you link the body with the breath, when you're, my focus is solely on getting the pose to embrace the breath that I'm actualizing, then the practice it's almost in slow motion. Right. Um, it has a sense of effortlessness. When people can connect to that, it takes the pressure off of trying to do it perfectly. It just becomes a real expression of their own heart. Sometimes it's graceful and elegant. Other times it's kind of funky and abstract. <laughs> but it's authentic to who the person is. It's their own poetry. Here's part of Sean Korn's introduction to body prayer in a class at the Yoga Journal San Francisco Conference. I want to show an example of how we're going to work with body prayer. Every day when I get up to practice, I immediately look at the practice as a sacred ritual. I immediately have this sense that it's important to set an intention and let my body activate that intention so that every movement becomes an expression of my devotion, that every movement becomes part of the sacred ritual in this dance. And at that point, I'm not gonna push, I'm not gonna strain, because everything that I'm offering, I'm offering with love, with the intention to heal. And some days I may have an individual in mind, other days I may have um, something broader that's happening in the news and put my energy and my attention there. And suddenly, whether I practice 15 minutes or two hours becomes really irrelevant because what's important is the intention that's behind the practice. And then when I fall out of a pose, my first impulse is not to swear or you know, to blame the cat. Um, I want to make it part of the experience because I don't want to send that energy out. And when I'm done with the practice, I can go on and do what I need to do knowing that um, I use my physical body as a way to express my soul's love. You can listen again and share this conversation with Sean Korn through our website, onbeing.org. There you can also watch a video of her demonstration of body prayer. It is a stunning few minutes of graceful athleticism and mental and spiritual focus. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the practicalities and power of yoga with Sean Korn. She is a superstar in the world of yoga teaching and training. She's also been a leader in applying the spiritual lessons of yoga to social problems. She began by working with Children of the Night, an organization in Los Angeles that helps child prostitutes between the ages of 11 and 17 get off the streets and begin to build normal lives. 
Later, she became an advocate and ambassador for Youth AIDS, an international education and prevention program. And that work inspired Sean Korn to found her own nonprofit program called Off the Mat, Into the World. When I spoke with her, she'd just returned from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Cambodia. She was working there with prostitutes and street children. The philosophy at the core of yoga reflects the Hindu and Buddhist belief in karma, the principle that choices, consequences, and purpose work themselves out across time, space, and multiple lifetimes. So, for example, Sean Korn sees her primary work as an activist to help people accept the given reality of whatever has happened to them and to experience it as an opportunity for grace and for growth. So I think someone might be listening to this and might say, well, this is lovely and it's sweet and it's it's all good, but the world is a complicated, dark place. And in fact, in the way you talk about yoga and also in, in how you, as you say, take it off the mat, I mean, you, you call it a fierce journey. And I, I want to also talk about that that mm-hmm. aspect of what yoga has taught you. Um, sure, happily. You know, it's... I'm a really unlikely person to be doing yoga. Like I said, I was brought up in a, a fairly blue-collar environment. I'm not an educated woman, um, very independent, and buying into all the spiritual um, fluffiness has never, ever been anything that I would have predicted would have happened to my life. Mm-hmm. And why I'm so attracted to it is because it's anything but fluffy. <laughs> what it taught me... F- not not right away. It took me a while. Once the emotions came up was that I realized that to really understand what love is and to understand this thing that they call the light, you also have to understand the opposite. You have to understand and embrace the power of the shadow, what love is not. And the shadow is also considered the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, I hesitate to use that phrase. The darkness to... within us, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it is within us. And... And that's the beautiful part, because if it's in me, it's also in you. And if I can understand it in me, then I can also witness it and recognize it within you without judging it. I will only judge your shadow if I'm judging my own. And how does yoga make that possible or trigger that? It's the emotional part of it. When emotions start to arise, you start to, it's like a mirror. I start to first experience my uncomfortableness to the emotion. And then I start to witness, if you have a good teacher and can guide you through this, I start to witness my attachment to it or the story I tell myself. And I start to spin out within that story. Um, Tension is addictive. And the shadow parts of the human experience are as well, but we tend to deny it. We tend to say, the shadow's bad. It's wrong. We shouldn't go there. So we and shut when, it down. When we say the shadow, are we talking about the things about ourselves we don't like? Are we talking about things we don't, we haven't done well? Are we talking about real vices? All of that? All I don't of know. it. Mm-hmm. All of it. Um, it depends on the judgment to it. My rage can be my shadow, but it can also be my light if it provides information for transformation. So it depends on my perception. But jealousy, obsession, inappropriate sexual behavior, drugs, alcohol, uh, war, power, anything that's being done from an egoistic place can be considered the shadow aspect of the human experience. One that we see is that's bad. When we're looking in yoga, no separation. Everything is connected. When we start to really understand this, then 
we start to see that if God is in love and if God is in grace and if God is in the children and all the stuff that we, we want to label, we also have to say that, well, there is no separation and therefore God must also be in the rage and the fear and the sadness and in all of the experiences of our life. Because if we don't embrace that, then what we're saying is that there is an other, that there is a disconnect. What I learned along the way, rather I should say I'm learning it more and more, is that everything that's happening on a planetary level, on a global level, the war and the violence and the terrorism, the oppression, everything is a manifestation of our collective thoughts. Nothing is being done to us that we are not a part of. And so very often in a classroom, I'll ask people, who here wants to see the end of war? You know, of course, everyone's going to raise their hand. Who here wants peace? They'll raise their hand. Um, Who here wants happiness and abundance for all? And, you know, everyone is in agreement. But then I'll ask the same question and I'll say, well, what about your ex-husband or your ex-wife? And the room, they start to laugh because, um, you know, because in theory, it's a great idea. But when you start to individualize it, you have to say, and I ask myself this question all the time, where am I living in interpersonal war? Where am I creating some sort of psychic terrorism between me and another person or my own form of oppression? And if I'm not dealing with that which is within me, then I'm a part of this problem. And I don't want to be a part of the problem. So I need to go into myself and see where are my shadows? Where am I not seeing that there is a bigger picture, a mystical picture at play? Mm-hmm. We can perceive things as bad or we can perceive things as opportunities. Right. You say our work is not to want experiences to change. And I would say this is very reflective of, of Buddhist teaching, for example, not to want experiences to change, but to pray for a shift of perspective. Why does that make all the difference? Um, and I say this, you know, I have the ability to articulate information, but I never want to mislead people into thinking that I live this way all the time. <laughs> I, I struggle with this, especially doing work in developing countries, which is where my heart is. Um, what I pray for, and I struggle with this every day, is I ask God, do not take this experience away, but give me the strength to perceive this experience differently. And these are my prayers. Life happens. People die. People get AIDS. People that you love get very, very ill, like my own dad. And that's life. It's a bummer. And on a very human level, I wish it could be different. But on a spiritual level, that's just how it goes down. And we can suffer by trying to make it different and trying to will our um, perception into uh, trying to understand it or get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or we can ask spirit to give us the strength to view an experience in a way that can be more empowering to the whole. When you're perceiving an experience differently, what I have to do is say, God is in all the moments, the light and the dark. And the fact that it's been delivered to me gives me the opportunity to either step into love or to step into fear. It's my choice. Give me the strength so that I can move towards love. And if I can't, help me to understand the purposefulness of my fear. And it's, I I say it as though it's easy, Mm -hmm. but it's probably the hardest thing ever. Um, But I know in my own soul that this is the way that I want to work. And, you know, 
when you say, you know, that everything happens, and you're not the only person saying this, in, in order for us, you know, every moment, however terrible, gives us an opportunity to move closer to transformation. But then, you know, for example, you're working with this organization, Children of the Night, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, which is pulling 11 to 17-year-olds, boys and girls who become prostitutes, you know, off the streets. And, I mean, can you say to them... Um, well, this is for your transformation. This is an opportunity. I or wouldn't say that lo- to... Can you look at them and, I, and believe that? That's. I have to believe it. Otherwise, I couldn't do my work. It's not for me to say to an 11-year-old kid, everything yeah, happens right. the way it's supposed to in order for your soul to transform. Mm-hmm. But if I don't believe it in my own heart, then it's very difficult for me to show up and dignify the human experience and empower their experience. Um, again, it's about... it. Life happens... But what are we going to do One life does happen to empower it rather than to stay victimized by it for the rest of our life? And, um, you know, I struggle with this working with children because that's, uh, you know, my life is I'm surrounded by adolescent prostitutes and uh, both here in the U.S. and in developing countries. I've seen levels of abuse that are absolutely unimaginable. And every single time my spiritual practice is in question because I have to show up and say to myself, Dignify the human experience with love and have no attachment to the end results. Well, I have a lot of attachment to the end result. I want to see the the end of exploitation. Mm-hmm. I get very angry at pimps and at um, the men who have sex with children, uh, adult men who exploit children on this level. I have a very difficult time seeing the God within their own soul. And so I have to take some very deep breaths and try to remember that there is a bigger picture at, the, at play that I may have no clue what it is. I don't know what karma is being burnt. I don't know what lessons need to be learned. But I do believe that we are all here for a singular purpose, and that is to learn what love is. Again, it's all the mystery. I want to ask you if these experiences of yours, these insights, and especially the work you do with child prostitutes, there's also this shadow side of of this observation that mind, body, and spirit are linked. We know that when there is sexual violence, when there is rape or, you know, when there's sexual abuse, it's not just bodies that suffer. It's the Mm -hmm. soul. Mm -hmm. How has yoga helped you understand that more deeply? Well, again, it goes back into my own history and it it all lines, you know, it's all interdependent and connected. and, And that's where I see the God. Um, my first experience of um, of betrayal, perhaps, was molestation at six years old. And I'm very public with this. I've talked about this frequently because it's it's led me to where I am today. It's where I find so much gratitude and I marvel at how one thing can become something else. Um, when you're a child, you have no. I had no sense of sexuality, of course. Yet I experienced both panic and pleasure. And I didn't know what pleasure was, so I felt ashamed and guilty. And again, this is uh, uh, not something I was conscious about. I was very aware of the molestation, but I wasn't as conscious of the intricacies that I'm sharing with you. Right, right. That came later. And so when I went through my own journey to the understanding that these events have happened, now what am I going to do with it? Mm -hmm. Am I going to continue pointing the finger back to my life and saying, you did this to me? And therefore, I get to spend the rest of my life in inappropriate relationships, afraid of the world because of what you did. Or can I say, like, no, that was done. 
here's how it disconnected me to spirit. Here's how I can reclaim this. And now look what I get to do with it, not in spite of the experience, but because of it. And suddenly this thing that was so bad actually became a gift. And that gift not only changes my heart, but maybe can impact someone else's. You also, in that practice where you, of body prayer, I think it was there, you, you talked about thinking about, like dedicating your practice and channeling that energy that you experience and tap into and take in and release in yoga, even towards the people who have, you know, not just towards the people you love and the things you're grateful for, but the people you're not grateful for, yeah. <laughs> right? The, the people who've hurt you. I have to. And what happens when you do that? I mean, what part of me gets irritated, but I that's just my ego. That's the part of me that just doesn't know better. But my heart opens. The people who have hurt or harmed me were also my teachers. They provided fierce lessons that brought me closer to myself and then therefore God and also taught me about life. I always pray for the people who have hurt and harmed me. And just when I think I've forgiven them, I forgive them again. Um, because always that energy will rear its its head, and I have to make sure that I'm constantly keeping myself clean. Otherwise, I'm holding on to that shadow of anger, and the inability to forgive, they say, is a poison you take hoping someone else will die. And um, again, it keeps us disconnected from God. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with yoga teacher and social activist Sean Korn. You've created something which you call Off the Mat, Into the World. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the projects you're working on and that you're working on before this um, have to do with children. The, we mentioned Children of the Night, the Cambodian Children's Fund, um, Youth AIDS. Uh, t- tell, tell me, how did you, though, come to really become activist in that way? Because this is a discussion within, you talk about the yoga community, which is actually quite large now. We're talking, I don't know, 20 million people. Um, but in fact, it's really, it's not necessarily a connected network. So talk to me about how that evolution took place in you and for you. Well, when I was young, I, was, I started getting involved in activism uh, around AIDS uh, when I was 19. But I was a horrible activist. I was the you know, I was on the soapbox with a megaphone and a finger up and telling everyone else how to live their life right. because I hadn't dealt with my rage. So being an activist was a an outlet for me uh, and not an appropriate one. It's not an effective way to, to, to create healing. So I got out of activism and really spent a lot of my years through yoga and just healing and trying to understand and, and coming to terms with the way that I believe spirit operates at this time. And... Something had happened in 1999 where abundance came into my life. Um, and I'm, t- I'm telling this story because I don't want it to seem like I just decided that I was going to go out into the world and serve and St. Sean was going to go and save the children. It w- wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. It, it was I, I made a little bit of money. And so I thought, well, you know, uh, my skill is yoga and, uh, you know, there's an at-risk community out there and they could probably use a little breathing and some yoga work. So, you know, maybe I'll work in the prison system. So I researched and I found out about Children of the Night. So I thought, oh, okay, adolescent prostitutes, mostly girls. Oh, they need to get in their body. They need to learn about breathing. This will be great. You know, I can help them to connect. I 
walked in, you know, all white and fluffy headed. And, you know, the girls are, are mostly uh, at this shelter at that time, black and Latina and a couple of boys, uh, you know, homosexual, all street hustlers. They were defiant, rude, so completely not impressed by, you know, the fabulousness of me. Right. Um, flicking each other's bras. They like they just could care less. The only reason they did anything was because there were counselors around forcing them to essentially. Hmm. And they were just the the you could just see the darkness on their these kids. And they seemed to me in that moment as um, hopeless. That's how I felt. Hmm. And I left the shelter after just a horrifying experience trying to teach them yoga (laughs) and I went into my car and I was really emotional and I was just thinking these kids are messed up they're never going to get better they're going to go back out into the world as uh, uh, you know as criminals and going on and on and on in my head and it always takes me a while to kind of you know where I always think spirits saying like you done yet you you gonna wake up to this yet because I realized that I had just met the part of myself that I had denied, that yeah. I had called into my experience the child in me that had been that is defiant and angry and scared to death and has absolutely zero tools for healing. And in fact, had been sexually abused also. Yes. And I, I I've, honestly, God is hysterical. And I get the joke really, really late <laughs> always because I got exactly God was saying it's time it's time you can't deny this if you really want to heal and open your heart to love then you've got to find the places within you that's disconnected from God and I'm giving you an opportunity go back and don't serve these girls meet them go and Mm -hmm. and meet you and that's exactly what happened I went back to those girls and the next time I went in I shared my story and instead of teaching them anything we just played and we connected and we laughed and the yoga was a, you know, a mess to the outside eye. <laughs> um, it was just what it was, was just a bunch of human beings laughing. And the more we laughed and giggled and just connected, the more they opened to me and the more we realized that we were both alike. And it was by learning to love those little girls. I learned to love that part of me that I have felt, especially the part of me that had received pleasure from the mm-hmm. molestation, mm-hmm. I got to reclaim her and understand that little girl and really forgive her and bring her back home again. So I always say, like, who got served? It wasn't those kids. It, it was me. Here are some remarks that Sean Korn made at the Omega Institute, a holistic learning center in Rhinebeck, New York. Give me a junkie and a whore any day of the week. They're my teachers. Find me someone who has gone to the darkest parts of their own character where they were so close to their own self-destruction and found a way to get up and out of it, I will bow on my knees to you because I want to know how did you do it? How did you go to that such a place of self-neglect and hate and uh, self-rejection and heal? You're my teacher. Who better than you, the alcoholics and the whores, to help someone like me who can't get out of that? You know, as we've said, there are so many people doing yoga now. There are yoga centers springing up on every street corner in every city and not just yoga centers, but classes and YMCAs. And 
um, I'm sure you're aware there there is with there within Christian circles there's there's some resistance to that some wariness because there is this sacred aspect to the tradition of yoga, the sacred history, and that you know there there is some movement to replace some of the the Hindu phrases uh, or the Sanskrit phrases with Christian vocabulary and words. I'm just curious about your how your response to that, how how you think about that. You know, again, yoga has been happening for thousands of years, and it, it's certainly a continually evolving practice. I like to think that yoga itself is bigger than any one uh, tradition, mm-hmm. and that it has its place in all the different traditions. And if a Christian needs to bring in, I mean, when I go into the Bible Belt, for example, and using prayer in the class. I will always mention Jesus Christ because I want to invoke into the space a sense of the sacred that's going to be familiar and comfortable to the practitioners that I'm working with so that they feel at home and they feel welcomed. So I don't really have a problem with it. Um, That's probably not a popular decision uh, or or, um, an opinion, but there's room for yoga and Christianity. There's room for yoga and Judaism. There's room for yoga in all the different traditions. What it comes down to, what you can't take away, is that yoga means we are all one. And so it's fine by me if that's if that's what's going to take uh, these religions to get everyone breathing together, moving together, re- uh, releasing tension together, and being <laughs> okay. more available to authentic prayer, not prayer from your head, but prayer from your heart that's more unified, then I, I, I welcome it. Sean Korn is the National Yoga Ambassador for Youth AIDS and co-founder of Off the Mat, Into the World. Her first DVD, Body, Mind, Flow, is available now. You can listen again or share this show with Sean Korn at our website, onbeing.org. You can also stream our show on your phone through our new iPhone and Android apps. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Chris Jones, and Julie Raw. Special thanks this week to Betsy Stretch and Matthew Sanford. On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. And by Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.